Why are people and performance suffering so much in companies today? How can companies operationalize business strategy and employee experience in a way that helps people and the organization flourish? And what is the role of leadership in making sure these changes happen? These are just a few of the important questions we will discuss today with special guest and organizational psychologist, Tennille Miller. Welcome to the Working Well podcast, the show that explores the rapidly changing landscape of work and well-being. Each episode, we dive into the hottest topics in leadership, employee well-being, and the future of work. I'm your host, Tim Boris. Before we dive in, let's learn a bit about Tennille. So Tennille is an organizational psychologist, management consultant, and executive coach. She's got a deep understanding of human behavior, high performance, and organizational dynamics. With over 15 years of experience advising Fortune 500 companies, top consulting firms, high growth startups, and entrepreneurs, she's become a respected figure in the business transformation, leadership, and employee experience space. Tennille has extensive media coverage including features in the Huffington Post, NASDAQ, TechFunnel, Employee Experience Magazine, and the American Journal of Health Promotion. Plus, she's got a great new book out called The Flourishing Effect, and it's a playbook for unlocking employee and organizational thriving, and also setting the stage for sustainable performance. Neil, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Uh, it's been, what, two weeks since we chatted, and uh, yeah, so great to see you again. You too, Tim. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, and uh, before we jump in, how things been going? What What do you see new on the horizon? Yeah, things are going well. I mean, I think that you know every day we're seeing new things and we're seeing old things come back over and over, like the return to office demands and things like that. Like that one just won't die. Um, so that keeps coming back, even though it's not new. But it's just fascinating to see that one just not go away. Um, but I'm just, I'm seeing a lot lately with AI and, you know, just different ways of, you know, hiring folks and just different technologies. And I don't know, it's really an exciting time for us, I think, in this space. I, I would agree. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of change happening. And, you know, one of your backgrounds is change management. So that's, uh, you're probably running quite, uh, quite busy these days with, uh, with work. Absolutely. Now, if we... Take uh, into your experience with the, the AI and return to office. What do you see as the, the biggest opportunity available for companies today to capitalize on? Well, I mean, there's, let's see, there's so many. I mean, I think when it comes to AI, I mean, this isn't rocket science that I'm saying right now, but I just think that people, a lot of folks don't know how to leverage it as well as they could. And they're kind of thinking, oh, it's farther off in the future than it really is. And I think that's maybe not a good thing. And so I think that organizations that are really digging in at all levels, you know, everyone from the individual contributor level all the way up to the CEO, everyone's really trying to upskill themselves and understand um, what it can do for them and how it can actually, it's not something to be afraid of. It's actually something to take all those redundant, you know, boring, less humane tasks off our plates so that we can do that more higher value, more strategic, more meaningful work. So I think that right now is the biggest thing that I think we need to be capitalizing more on. I, I agree on that. Uh, what companies are you seeing, or you don't have to mention specific company names, but what examples are you seeing of companies using it well and doing it well? Yeah, I mean, I, I won't list names um, just for various reasons, but I, several clients are doing a lot in the space of, you know, again, 
automating a lot of the copywriting, right? Marketing, a lot of the marketing department, um, not saying that's good or bad, but it is what it is. Um, a lot of the legal uh, work that needs to be done, a lot of that's being automated and they're doing that. Um, I've also seen a lot of interesting things if you look at AI and return to office together, right? If you think about both those together, I've seen a lot of companies, um, some great ones actually that are, have developed these really great apps so that it actually makes that less of a hurdle. So it's like, you don't go into the office and then we're all you know on Zoom calls with other people. There's lots of great apps that have come out in the last couple of years that really help orchestrate that. And I think they call it structured hybrid. So really understanding who's gonna be in when, connecting with them, having the calendar all synced up and everything else so that it really isn't um, this hurdle to get over. It's really more so it's actually better than working from home some days or being demanded to go to the office. It's actually that nice hybrid in between. So those are some of the things I've seen most recently, but I think those are really interesting. Yeah, we're we're seeing that in Calgary. Uh, some companies are mandating back to the office. There was a large company that is now officially five days a week back in the office. And uh, I what still... are, you, are you are you working with that company directly, or you just read about it? No, I've got some uh, friends and uh, colleagues that have that are at that company now, and man, the pushback is so big. <laughs> Yeah. How are they, how are they reacting to it? Meaning like the people that you know, and maybe their colleagues and things like that, or is there talk like there is in a lot of organizations where once that demand is put in place, oh, we're all kind of looking for jobs in other places, or are they going to stick it out? Or what are they thinking? I, yeah, there are many of them that are looking for other jobs and yeah. you know, they'll stick with it until they find something. But as soon mm -hmm. as something comes up, it's at the same level and they have the flexibility. Yeah, they're gone. Absolutely. This is just, I mean, we could talk all the podcast just about this topic, really. Um, I mean, this just, it yeah, doesn't die. Um, but it's just, it's interesting because I think, you know, depending on the different companies and the different leaders, the ones that are demanding it, I know several of them have different reasons and we, we don't necessarily need to go into all the different reasons. I think we know most of them, but I find it fascinating that they kind of say, oh, well, when the labor market is less tight or the economy or there's a potential recession on the horizon, they feel like, oh, good, this is the time for us to really make these demands. And it's like, get over it. It's not about the back and forth, you know, tight labor market and then the employees have more uh, say or, you know, the opposite. It's not it's not that it's literally a problem that everybody should be addressing together, like, you know, in ways that work best for employees and leaders and the organization versus kind of treating it more like a uh, like a baseball game or something. Yeah, it, it's so adversarial. It's like us against them. Hey, we're trying yes. to make this collaborate on what the best solution is for the people and the company. Exactly. And the sad thing is like, I mean, it wasn't ever that before leaders, the ones who do this made it that way. Cause I mean, it's not like employees just decided, Oh, well, we're going to stick it to the leaders and never come back. It's like the leaders are the ones that I'm seeing, not all of them, but some of them that are demanding this, they're the ones that are making that adversarial game where the the employees aren't, it's not a game. It's like, Hey, you, you know, we proved that this worked really well for a couple of years. You have the proof you were profitable. We made you, you know, more money during that time and we did it fine. And now you're acting like, you know, it didn't happen. And so it's just kind of like a weird psychological disconnect. I actually talked about this in my book and it's just, it's, it's just a lot of psychology happening there. It's just fascinating. Well, and you have this, uh, we will talk a bit more about your book in a bit because it definitely comes into play what we're talking about here, but you have this operational background as well as the people side uh, and and the business strategy consulting so yeah. how do you 
how do you mix those together in the work you're doing with clients? Yeah. And this is something that I guess for me, I think I just, I've taken it for granted because I've been doing this work for so long in all these different capacities. And I have a very systematic view. Like I see all the parts of it because I have done it from different vantage points. And so I haven't seen a lot of people talking about it this way, but what I've come to the conclusion of is what we really want to be doing is operationalizing our business strategy through our people, right? Because a lot of times they think about, oh, HR is over here. That's this one-off thing. Our people's like, they don't see it as connected a lot of people in the organization. And so what I try to coach leaders on is say, no, it's actually, you are driving your business strategy. If you do it right, you actually do drive that through your people. And the way that that happens is through um, how you design your employee experience and your culture, and then the organizational systems that deliver it. Um, so stop me anywhere along the way, but like the way that I kind of see that happening is if you first think about, you know, typically one of the, the items on the strategy list, the business strategy is, you know, customer experience, right? We always want to be customer centric. We want to you know, have a great customer experience. I always ask leaders to start with that maybe if they haven't thought of something else and just ask yourself, like what type of experience you need to create for your employees so that they can then deliver that kind of great customer experience. Because what happens a lot of the time is we focus so much on the customer experience. We're not realizing or not focused on the importance of we need employees are delivering that to your customers. So they need to actually have that great experience as well. So for example, it's really hard um, for your brand to deliver like a cutting edge, seamless, intuitive customer experience. If internally there's all kinds of clunky and wonky processes, it's bureaucratic, there's friction for employees, like that kind of stuff doesn't make them better able to deliver a good customer experience. And so it's like thinking like that is one lever that I, I show leaders to pull. Um, so getting that cluster or that employee experience to deliver the customer experience you want. And then the big one that actually is kind of all encompassing is really the culture. And this is, again, a topic that we could talk about just this alone, probably forever. Um, but what I see is, you know, first of all, the culture is part of the employee experience, right? So it's part of that, like the whole experience that employees have. And what I tell leaders is that when they leverage it very deliberately and it's strategically leveraged, it actually delivers your strategy. Because think about it, it's like almost like um, a self-driving car. If it's programmed right, the algorithm's programmed right, and it's you know deliberate, and you're you're always updating it and kind of staying vigilant about it and that sort of thing, it's going to automatically deliver you to your location. And that's exactly how I talk about culture. So we can talk more in detail if you want me to about what that looks like. But that's really how I see um, ways that leaders can operationalize their strategy through their people. When yeah, I love that, and it, it talks to a lot of the challenges that businesses face because a lot of senior business leaders are focused on the operations, the process, the delivering results for the bottom line. And yeah. people often get lost in that. Yeah. So it, it's not either or it's both being, when you do both, you deliver results for the business and the people, because if the people aren't performing well, and that that's really what this podcast is all about is how do we, connect business performance and people performance and in the past those have been seen as separate yeah exactly i love that. i'm so glad and that's one of the reasons i was so excited to join you today is because that's exactly how i think about it as well it's, it's not people or the business strategy it's the people is like the front end of it and that will actually be like the flywheel to deliver the strategy and so like one of the ways that i kind of start with leaders in this culture space about this is like 
we talk about like, so if you think about like what needs to actually change or evolve in the organization for it to happen, right? So you think about um, if we want to digitally transform our technology or we need a, you know, culture of innovation to deliver on our business strategy, or if we need to be more customer centric, that would mean things like breaking down silos and, you know, improving collaboration. So it's basically like, a re like how I position it is like, it's a reverse engineering it. So it's like you reverse engineer it by building your culture to deliver um, through the environment and behaviors and mindsets that it creates, that's how it delivers your strategy. And so it's like, you think about, okay, so who's impacted by it? Um, what will they need to do differently? What's in it for them? Like all these kinds of questions that we ask as far as like the employees and the things we need to think about when we're building our culture and we're or evolving our culture if we already have one. Um, and thinking through like, what do they need to be successful in doing the things we need them to do to drive that strategy, right? And so I also recommend that we're doing co-creating and things like that along the way, but it's, it's very much, I, I see it as an input. I see it like investing in the employees and like the experience they have and the culture and the environment and their well-being. Investing in that drives the business strategy is how I position it. Love that. Yeah, and, and more companies thought that way. People mm -hmm. would be happier, more engaged and that, goes to the next question is what are some of the most common challenges companies face when trying to call it operationalize their culture? Yeah, I mean, there's plenty. I think, um, I think one of the biggest ones is like a lot of people don't really understand what culture is. They, you know, like, they're like, oh, we know it's important. We know we see the bottom line. There's tons of data showing the metrics and like, you know, impact of a toxic culture or otherwise. Um, but they just don't really understand it. And so I always share with them, like, it's literally the most strategic lever you're either not pulling or not pulling in the right way. And that's how I always feel like, you know, if your business strategy isn't being achieved, it's probably a culture issue. Because I just feel like, you know, culture, it really makes or breaks the organization in terms of, as we know, um, productivity, profitability, engagement, um, innovation, customer satisfaction, burnover, like all those things that we're talking about. Um, but it's interesting too, because I saw a study recently from MIT and they were in the study, it said that like 90, 92% of leaders, they know those things, right? They understand the importance of culture and its impact on the performance in the organization, but only 16, 16% are doing anything about it because they think it's too complicated or time consuming. And so I always go in there and kind of simplify culture to them and help them understand that it's literally what you need to be doing is being very deliberate, as I said, reverse engineering from what we need to accomplish in the business, working backwards as far as like what environments we need to be creating through mindsets, behaviors, experiences for people to deliver that. And then that's how you build your culture deliberately, right? So whether that's the values that you focus on, there's all kinds of leverage we can talk about about how you build and demonstrate and evolve that culture, but essentially you're reverse engineering it. And then the biggest thing too, I think, is that a lot of leaders and just people in general, not just leaders, but they don't realize that you need to be very deliberate with it. Like I said, you need to be very vigilant with it because literally your culture changes moment to moment. You hire new people, your cultures change. You let people go, your cultures change. Um, you have new new processes, new technology, whatever, your cultures change. And so you have to always be monitoring it. And so I, I almost wish that there was like a chief C-level, like chief culture officer, but like not just for, you know, touchy-feely kind of things that we think are culture, but really metrics-driven, how we're measuring our culture every day, how we're adjusting it, how we're iterating on it, how we're building that into organizational sy uh, systems, how we're, you know, incenting people and disincenting people when they're living the values in the culture by, and not, things like that. So I think we need to get a lot more um, operational about it. 
Yeah. And you speak to a, something I see all the time is the, usually the C-suite thinks of HR as this fluffy thing, or it's a administrative function for payroll and benefits compliance. and compliance. And, and they're, they're not seeing that as a strategic lever. And one of the roles that I always promote is companies to hire a chief well-being officer and well-being I, I you specifically use well-being instead of wellness because wellness is seen as HR and tactics. Yeah. Whereas well well-being is about performance and thriving. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you have to have culture, but you also have to have metrics. You have to have strategy. How are we implementing that from the C-suite down? Yeah. And so yeah, like whether you call it chief well-being officer, chief culture officer, chief people performance officer, <laughs> something like that. Companies that get the CHRO or the CPO role and they've elevated HR to the C-suite, I think that's a great start. Often I've seen the people in that position are, um, some of them are not HR related at all. And so they're, they're not seeing the, the people picture and the, the HR people that are elevated to that role tend to still come from the benefits and payroll side and they're, they are learning to think more strategically at the C-suite, but it's still not happening as often as you want to see it. And particularly about that operationalizing performance. You know, I love that. I'm just going to take a note here. I, first of all, I agree hundred percent. And I think that's where, that's where we get that when it, when it's successful, I think that's what the language we need to be using is performance because performance in it is like, Hey, it includes well-being. It includes the metrics. It includes all that stuff. So it's not just soft stuff, but it's also the hard stuff and we are measuring it. And I think there's some, the beauty is there is a ton of data out there of how the right culture or the right experience, employee experience and some of these things that are typically thought of as more soft. There's lots of data that shows they're not soft at all. And there's direct correlations to the bottom line and things like that. But to your point, I think it's, it's almost like we need to work on the deliverer. So maybe we have a CHRO that is really that benefits compliance kind of function and that's fine, but then we need somebody else as well. I think that isn't an HR C-level person, but they are focused on the performance and the culture. Um, we should invent that basically is what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. There, there are a very, very small number of companies out there that have elevated that well-being performance to the C-suite. Yeah. It's so rare right now. You know, I, you know, Jen Fisher at Deloitte in the US. I was just going to bring her up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And she, I, and that was 2012 when she got, went into that role. And now they, um, they changed it too, because it was chief well-being officer. Now I believe they call it human sustainability officer, which is so cool. Yes, exactly. And realistically, whatever name you choose is almost irrelevant. Yeah. As long as the mindset and the purpose towards that role is to yeah sustainability of performance of people and you know there's uh, uh dr steve mcgregor wrote uh, the book sustaining executive performance and I, I love that it's a great great book and he he has the chief well-being officer uh podcast and he does all lots of that work but his thing is and and where where i came from as well is the athletic side when as as an elite athlete or coaching elite athletes, you can't expect people to perform at a high level over the long term if the entire environment isn't right. 
They have to have the right culture on the team. They have to have the right support systems, the right structure and operationalizing the their days, basically. They, they put a lot of effort and focus and metrics into being able to perform well over the long term. So why don't businesses do that for their It's top so people? true. So I love that you brought that up and that is, is your background because I bring that up too. And it's like, you know, if you think of any elite athlete in any realm, they're constantly coached, constantly getting feedback, constantly pivoting, which is totally different than the way that we do our performance reviews, for example. And to your point, it's not just about them individually. It's the environment, which makes a huge difference, right? If their home environment, they're taking care of their body. If you think about like, it's about their body as well as their, their brain or their performance in more intellectual capabilities. So I think we need to get to a point where we are really using those metaphors more in the workplace. Well, and you, it's funny you brought up performance reviews. Imagine if uh, a coach had a once a year performance review with their players. No, no. <laughs> yeah, by the way, remember uh, 10 months ago, that, that thing you did, you probably could have done it better in this way. And once a year you get, this feedback, it's like, come on, it's it's absolutely useless. And the fact that companies are still doing these formal annual reviews mm-hmm. with not much else in between is speaks volumes. It absolutely does. And then they wonder why people aren't performing at the levels they want them to, or why people are leaving, or what you know, there's all kinds of there's all kinds of things that happen with that too. And it's kind of like at that point in time, because so much time has passed, not only can I not really take action on it, it's not relevant. You don't remember half of it. And then there's also, if you think about the psychological dynamic, there's resentment from both sides building up to that from probably the manager because they're resenting the person isn't performing that they want them to. And then once that person gets that feedback, then tons of resentment comes out. because so it's like, hey, I can't do anything about it now. I can't learn from it. So it's just really not helping anybody. Yeah, or they feel blindsided. I had no idea. I thought I was doing a great job. And now a year later, you tell me I'm not. Exactly. Yeah. It just, it feels like, um, almost like you're lying, right? The relationship is not authentic in that moment. Yeah. And so, um, change management is also something you, um, that's in your wheelhouse. How, what are your strategies and I guess tips for helping leaders particularly manage change throughout their teams? I guess, globally, the organization. Yeah, uh, well, there's a lot at work here. I think a lot of times what I've learned is that a lot of leaders, um, they want their people to change, but they don't realize that that means they have to change (laughs) and that they have to do something too. And so that's one of the biggest gaps that I have to educate them on is like, hey, you know, um, you want your people to adopt this technology platform or you want them to do this over here. You need to lead that as a leader and you need to be authentic about it. So we have very deep conversations in the very beginning of once we understand what the change is and who's going to be impacted, how they're going to be impacted, what they need to do differently and all those things. There's the discussion then of what are you as a leader willing to do? as far as leading this, right? Because a lot of them just think it's sending an email. That's all it is. People will comply. I'm like, no, that didn't work great back in the day. And it definitely doesn't work well today with our very um, co-creative Gen Z and millennial colleagues. That's not how they work. And and it didn't really work anyways, as I mentioned. So I have a, a conversation with them understanding like, from a leadership perspective, how can you lead this? How can you message this? How can you be the one rewarding and recognizing people that are doing the right behaviors and the things that you want to see? How can we have you lead and maybe show examples of yourself doing that change? 
um, and really making things tangible sometimes with symbols, if we can, that are maybe part of the culture, if we can. So it really depends on their organization and their culture and what the change is. But like, I really try to educate them on the front end that this needs to be led by you and your team um, for everyone else to come along on the journey. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the leadership side because yeah, that's yeah. a key barrier that I see and a disconnect is change wants to happen, but it's led by leaders. You talked about employee experience at the beginning and how do you see leadership development really contributing to that employee experience or I guess what needs to happen to for in leadership development for employee experience to really change? Yeah. Um, well, let's see here. It, it kind of depends on, well, let me think here. Because the employee experience is really every moment, right? So it's everything from before someone even works for your organization, they are looking at Glassdoor at your company and they're kind of thinking about your brand and maybe asking people what they think about working there. It starts that. And then it moves all the way into any every aspect of hiring, interviewing, onboarding, any development during the time, their whole employee journey. And it still goes to once they're offboarded and they're still in your ecosystem, how did you treat them? Is there an alumni network? Are you still engaged with them? It's that whole process. So if you think about it that way, the manager or the leadership role comes in there where a lot of it, I think, is just really upskilling managers on being better managers, right? And again, this is uh, this is something we could also talk about forever, but I just feel like with our at a systematic level in our most organizations today, because of the way they're still set up on these linear career paths from 100 years ago, people are promoted because they were a great individual contributor or they were there for a long time. And then they're promoted, but they're usually not given training. Or if they are, it's minimal or it's years down the road often. Um, and then they're also not really asked if they even want to lead people, but that's the only way to progress and make more money and get promoted and titles and things like that. It's just because of the model. So I say all that because that already kind of shoots us in the foot from having great, from a perspective of expecting to have great managers. Um, but I think that the manager, there's a lot of things they can do, but it's like the organization really needs to be deliberate about it, right? And, and it's great if the individual has enough um, ability to kind of go out and upskill themselves and get a coach and, you know, try to be a better manager on their own. But I really think the environment is key. And so, for example, that's where the culture comes in again, right? So, um, I can be a manager. Maybe I'm trying to just have the most amazing team. I'm upskilling. I'm getting a coach. I'm doing all kinds. I'm doing all the right things to be a great manager. But let's say the culture is terrible or uh, senior leadership is not walking the talk or they're doing all kinds of things wrong. It makes it really difficult. Like, for example, not to bring up the RTO thing again, but this is a good example of it. Managers are really in a squeeze right now, right? Because a lot of these senior leaders are demanding people come back, saying managers, you have to enforce it. And then their people are pushing back on the managers. And so the managers are really in a tough spot for a variety of reasons right now. But those are just some of the things that come to mind as far as how the manager plays into that employee experience. Yeah. And, and you brought up a good point about the people that are proactive and growth mindset are going to want to improve their own skills. And you know, as an executive coach, I, I see people coming to me that say, Hey, I'm leading a team now. I don't feel I have the support from my organization. So I'm going to hire you as a coach to help me through this process. And I think that's why we see bright spots within organizations where certain leaders have taken upon themselves to do it and their team is thriving. But you look at another leader in the same or same division and it's a toxic environment for there. So when people move in and out of those teams, 
it's dramatic. And, you know, my partner is, uh, she leads teams in a technology within a larger, pretty tried or stayed, <laughs> I guess, traditional organization, but she leads the technology thing, uh, teams within that. And so you see people moving in and out that are coming from other parts of the organization. Like, oh, your team is so different. We've never seen anything like this. And it's not, it's not uncommon to see that in, in companies. So I think there's what you said, operationalizing the, the people development from the leadership standpoint, but also how that trickles down to everyone throughout the organization and the well-being, sustainability, performance, whatever we want to call it at that point starts to improve globally throughout that, uh, well, I guess we can say globally through the, the, the world as well, but within that company particular. Well, and that's why you hit on, you hit a great example here. That's why it's important to have that sustainability human performance officer at the C level because and not, you know, housed in HR over here because they need to be able to come and find these bright spots. I mean, because they'll, they'll, let's say that for that example, like let's say Jen, for example, let's say she sees that there's a couple of leaders in different lines of service or different business units that are really those great leaders, those great managers. She, if that's her job, she's got to be on the lookout for that kind of stuff. And I don't know if she is, but I'm assuming I'm putting words in her mouth here, but I'm assuming that could be a function where people either come to her and tell her that, and, or she sees that in the data for the performance reviews and promotions and how people are following different leaders. And she's, once she learns that, then it's like, okay, let's replicate these bright spots. What are they doing right? Let's go in there and get you know curious and find out what they're doing well and really build that into some of the different um, behaviors of the culture and maybe expectations of managers and ways that we train managers and that sort of thing. And then on the flip side, when we're hearing about bad managers who maybe through exit interviews or other forms of data, we're learning that people were leaving them in droves and things like that. Let's find out what they were doing wrong and then not let that be the case. And so I think that that's a really interesting way to bring data into it as well, because she'd also have that bird's eye view that can see across lines of business and, and service and things like that. Yeah, that's, and that's an excellent point, because right now in most organizations, learning and development will do some of that. HR will do some of that from the performance review side, but they don't often talk to each other. And there's no gonna, one. Yeah. There's no one higher up in the organization that has that bird's eye view that yeah. is being able to connect those people. Yeah. And that's a big gap, right? I mean, you and I are just talking about it right now. I'm assuming people that are going to watch this and listen to this and say, oh yeah, that totally is a gap, right? Because that's the other thing too that I've noticed, whether it's doing change management work or culture work or whatever it might be, is everything is seen as a disconnected entity in the company, right? So, oh, I'm in marketing. I don't need to worry about HR. HR is over here. This is over there. Everything is in the system. Everything is in the environment. Everything impacts everything. And so that's why we need somebody at that very high level to be able to see how all those uh, things are impacting each other, the systems, the rewards, all that stuff. So what are, I guess, in the organizations you've worked with, what are some of the most innovative ways you're seeing companies do that? Maybe not have that top level, but at least from a, an engagement employee experience standpoint, what are some of the most innovative ways? Let's see here. Um, you know, it's interesting because it changes um, 
with things like different trends, like technology, for example, I'll just rattle a couple things off that occur to me. I think bringing, making sure number one, that the technology is up to date, because that's another gap too. And it's part of the employee experience. It's a big part of it. I, I forget the number, but there was a study done a little bit ago, like a year ago. And I think it was like 35 or 40%, some, some significant number of Gen Z employees said they would leave their company if they had terrible technology. And actually a lot of them do, especially the big enterprise companies, they're still dealing, a lot of them are still dealing with the old clunky enterprise technology. And that's like stepping back in time if you're a Gen Z or a millennial person, because you're used to, you know, Netflix and Spotify and Amazon and everything being hyper-personalized. Um, user-friendly, easy to use, catering to you in your day-to-day -day life. And then you have to go back in time to go to work. So I think one of the biggest things is technology and just, you know, staying, like I said, stay on top of my AI, find ways to make people's jobs easier and less have less friction using AI and having data that speaks to each other instead of in silos. I think that's a big one. I think the other part is different psychological principles. So for example, when we're rolling out a change program, you know, a new change happening or a new culture or any anything happening in a company, we need to bring in people at all levels of the organization to co-create it with us as early as possible. That's a more of an innovative mindset, not necessarily, not necessarily an innovative technology, but it's a mindset and it's really a part of design thinking and just having more agile ways of working. That's really important, I think. Um, as you can tell, I'm not rattling off things like a foosball table or Taco Tuesday, because that is not the employee experience. That is not culture, no matter what anyone thinks, that's not it. Those are like Band-Aid cosmetic things, but that's not actually moving the needle in any significant way. So I'm just gonna pause there and see if that's the, the road that you wanted me to go down or are there other areas you want me to dive into? I, I love that. Uh, two things you said is first, the the foosball tables and the taco Tuesdays. It's so much of that. We see that on the wellness side too. It's like, Oh, we're going to offer this. We're going to offer that. We've got a massage therapist coming in. We've got a gym. We've got all these stressing you out so much that you, it doesn't matter how much, you know, cosmetic stuff we did because you're so stressed out that you can't even sleep at night. Yeah. And, and you know, the yoga class at lunch, that can be a great tool in the toolbox, but if people are getting booked meetings over lunch and they can't attend yep. the yoga class and they're you know, rushing around to try and get to it because their leader's not supporting them or the organizational culture doesn't do that, then what's the point? And so when that's why I got out of wellness and started doing the consulting, the coaching, because I was like, we're offering all these programs that the people that take them love, but it's not making a difference in the organization. And I also... You said something else that stuck out. Now I'm drawing a mind blank on it. It was uh, technology or co-creation. Ah, I'll, it'll come back to me. That's okay. In one yeah, no, no worries. And actually, I love that you brought up the the wellness and the well-being point because I actually started my career, and this is how I found this kind of work. I, I started at a company called Staywell Health Management, and I was there for a couple of years, and we did that. We did the research and like on health risk assessments of employee population. So of course, understanding the top causes of death, the top causes of the healthcare costs, which are insane in the US. And so we did all that research, but then we also created programs, well-being programs that you're talking about. I know very well what you're talking about. And what I learned there, and that's what kind of opened my career up to all the work I do now is that you can have the best program, the best one-off, whatever, like you said, the best massage therapist, you can have the best snacks, farmer's market in the backyard, whatever it might be. But if you're not thinking about it holistically, including all the cultural levers you talked about, like if you can't take 
um, a walk at lunch because you're triple booked. If the CEO frowns upon people um, going out for that walk at lunch, whatever that case may be, all those levers in the organization will make or break any program, whether it's well-being, um, a technology, business strategy, whatever it is, those levers are all going to make or break it. And so that's why I always advise leaders to think about this very holistically. Like you said, it's operationalizing the strategy, which means you're thinking about all these levers in the system and you're using them strategically to get the results that you want. Yeah, I agree. I, well, we're speaking the same language for sure. Yeah. Um, now, return to office has come up a few times and uh, I, I take it you're a big fan. <laughs> I just I feel like I'm reading the sports pages every day when I look at the news at, at the stories about it because like I said it's one side or the other and it's very everyone's very clear on where they stand but it's just there's no right answer which is really interesting. So we're you know people keep talking about the impact of COVID and yeah we're three and a bit years out three and a half years out now from the start of it. What do you see the next five years looking like in terms of where that evolves? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things that I have realized over the years as well, and it's probably why I speak so strongly on this, is that I've actually been remote, hybrid, distributed for like a decade. I've been in a consult, as you probably have in many ways as well, right? Like you'll travel to a client site if you need to. If you have a meeting here and there, maybe, you know, when I was at PwC, for example, I'd go to the office if I had like a, a connection or a meeting or whatever. But like for the most part, you know, your clients are always across the world and across the country. So unless there's a real significant reason to get together, most of the work is always done, you know, remotely or whatever anyways. And so I've gotten very comfortable. I mean, it's, it's great. I think it's so wonderful. And I've seen all the benefits of it. But what I realized is that is not the case for everybody. Obviously, this was a new thing for a lot of people and they aren't comfortable with it. But what I would say to answer your question I think based on all the data that I'm seeing as far as the real estate trends and now that the leases are starting to come up over and over of these buildings that have been sitting nearly empty and people are downsizing their space. I mean, it's not like it's going away. Office isn't going away. We know this. But I do think that we're very much moving more into that um, distributed, flexible, I would call it, flexible models. So obviously some organizations are doing this well where it's kind of like, hey, we have offices. If you want to come in, the space is smaller than it was and they save some money on that and they save on um, carbon footprint. But essentially it's not a demand. Um, and then what they're finding is, I mean, Gen Z specifically, they want to come to the office. They've never been in the office before the pandemic. You know, they weren't working. And so um, people do want to come in and that's the beauty of it, but they don't want to be told what to do. Like they are little children. And so that's where, I mean, I've been doing a lot of work with coaching leaders around, first of all, all that, right. You don't have to be in the office. There's ways to do it, all kinds of great ways and practices, but then also if they want to do it well, if they do want to get people back, do not make demands is what I tell all of them. There's a lot of ways to make it more of a magnet, not mandate strategy. And I think the companies that are doing really well are employing things like that. They're employing um, behavioral economics. They're doing things, like I said, with those apps we were talking about. So you can actually do structured hybrid and know who's coming in when. So you can plan your day around it. There's all kinds of wonderful tools that are emerging now. And I think that I recommend to all leaders, you know, really get on board with that, right? Just stop making the demands. If you do one thing, leaders, don't make the demands because that's not helping you. Um, and there's a lot of really interesting creative ways we can get, you know, get to kind of get to like a, I think more of a common um, future together if we do it together. Yeah, I agree. And short of you know, roles that need to be in person, like if you're, uh, well, I was even, I was going to say if you're a surgeon, but now you can do robotic surgery. Yeah, I've been wherever. seeing that. Yeah. yeah. 
Like but there are certain- I'm sorry, BMW and a few other organizations have been using um, digital twins to build things. So it's like, you really don't even have to be there for some of these physical roles anymore, which is so cool. Yeah. And, and there, people will choose. I, yeah. I know I'd love to go into the office some days yeah. and you brought up the great point is that consultants and, you know, as a business owner, I'm in and out all the time. I, I've been for at least 15 years. I've had virtual staff uh, overseas. Uh, I use freelancers all the time and I've had clients all over the country, all over the world. It's not new, but as you said, most people haven't done it before. And so it is new for the majority of the, the working world. And we know there's no technological barriers for it. We know that most of the brain jobs or um, most corporate roles can be done from anywhere. And they have been done. I mean, think about it. Like, I always laugh at these leaders. Like, I'll be in a coaching conversation. I'll be like, so let me get this right. So you're not sure if your people are working yet. Before the pandemic, they would take work home, take their laptops home, night times, weekends. Lots of times they're checking email and doing things when they're on vacation. So it was okay for them to do it then, but they're not working now. Like, how does that connect? I just don't understand that. Yeah, that that whole trust communication. Um, that's crazy. It's and that's, a and I hate to bring it to that, but like, you know, just my logical brain goes there. Again, we could talk all day about this, but like, there's a lot of layers to this, right? So to your point, the technology isn't the problem. We've had it for a long time. People have been doing this for a long time in some level, but I think that that ego slash the leader not feeling like they have a role. I've heard that from a lot of leaders that I've been coaching where they're like, Hey, you know, between you and I, if I don't have people, if I can't see people out there kind of like, you know, not scurrying around, but like kind of out there looking busy, I feel like I'm not important because like they don't need me basically. And I'm like, well, that's not, that's your ego. That's not a reason to demand people uproot their lives, move back to a big city that they moved away from during the pandemic or all the other different things that are happening. And the other part too, is that I always, um, in a lot of my writing and speaking, I'm trying to bring out the other points of view that I think leaders aren't seeing, because not all leaders, but some leaders, like they're very much in their own echo chamber. And, and the average CEO, average CEO is usually an older white male, right? Nothing wrong with that. But the point is your employee population, their lived experiences, what they look like, what their lifestyle is, how many people they have to care for at home, all the things is probably drastically different than the majority of CEOs. And so when these CEOs are making these decisions, I don't think they're, I think they're taking for granted that they're like, oh, I'm fine. We can go back to the office. It's like, but yeah, but you're, but the pandemic showed us that all these women, all these folks from minority backgrounds, all these people with caregiving duties, the code switching, the, you know, all the stuff that was going on, the microaggressions, all that stuff that was really unearthed during the pandemic. It was always happening, but it wasn't brought to bear the way it has been now. And so that's where I kind of get upset about this because I'm like, you know, leaders who are making these demands now are basically like gaslighting their people because they're like, oh, we realize that you're getting, you're having to code switch in the office. We realize there's microaggressions happening. We realize all this stuff that our employees are going through. We now know it. It's now in the open. And we're saying, we don't care. We're saying you still need to come to the office. And that I think is, that's a real juicy topic. I don't know. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I wanted to, I know a lot of the stuff we talked about is touches on, is touched on in your book, the, the flourishing effect. Yeah. Um, 
give me a quick overview of the book and uh, the the listeners an over quick overview of the book. Yeah, I mean, it's called The Flourishing Effect. It launched a little bit less than a month ago. I've had some really great feedback. It's just been so much fun. And really what it is, is I just realized, again, kind of everything that we're talking about today, I just, over the years and all the different roles that I've had in industries and organizations, um, again, I have that very systematic view. And so I keep seeing these blind spots over and over that's tripping leaders and or their organization up. I've also seen what works really well in some of these really innovative organizations. And so I thought, you know what? There's never been a better time to address all these issues that everybody's talking about uh, than now. So I, it took me about a year to write it, and uh, I'm really excited about it. Fantastic. And where can people find it? It's on Amazon. It's on Barnes & Noble. And I think anywhere you buy books, it should be available. So. Excellent. And where can people find you? LinkedIn? Um, where else? Your website? Yep, LinkedIn for sure. I love connecting with the community out there and, you know, commenting and asking questions. And I just, I love to learn how people are applying these things in their organizations. Uh, I've also got uh, my website is tennielemiller.com. And then I've also got my organization, which is experienceandtransformation.com. Fantastic. One last little thing. What's the, the one piece of insight that you, and I think you mentioned it earlier, but I'm curious to see if that's what you pull out now. What's one piece of insight you're going to give for leaders uh, to help people flourish? Ooh, it's hard to choose just one. Um, I think it would be, well, it's hard, but I guess um, I have this saying on my website that I think sums it all up. And it, and I say it all the time. I forget who said it to me, but they basically said, you know, create um, environments where people can do the best work of their lives. And I think that that says everything, right? Because that means that the people are flourishing, they're having well-being, all the engagement, all the wonderful things. But it also means that the organization is flourishing. The organization is uh, thriving because people are doing that very best work and that very high performance. Um, so I think that that's what I would say. Fantastic. Tanil, it's been amazing to have you on the show and I look forward to connecting again. Uh, I know our work crosses over so much and it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Tim. I appreciate you having me. That wraps up another episode of the Working Well Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Which guests or topics would you like to see featured on the show? Message me through LinkedIn or on the contact page of timboris.com. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Tim Boris with Fresh Group and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.